Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. 14 down, one to go. Um, we had the penultimate round of MotoGP, um, the 14th uh, the 14th round of MotoGP, but only the 13th race because uh, obviously Qatar, Moto2, uh, Moto2 and Moto3 only. That's left us all a little bit confused and unable to count, but uh, that's the way it is. We only need to count to one number now. Um, which is uh, 15, coming up, Portugal, Portimao. With me in that Portimao is uh, Mr. Neil Morrison. How are you, Mr. Neil Morrison? Hello, David. Yes, I'm pretty good, thank you. Um, there is a sort of end-of-term uh, vibe in the air in which uh, we're all getting ready to um, tie the teacher up to the chair and uh, sort of draw a moustache on his upper lip and yep. just cause a bit of chaos. <laughs> Exactly, but I mean it's the, the, it, it's an end of uh, end of term vibe, but it's an end of term vibe um, sort of on an away day, really, isn't it? Because you're at a brand new circuit, which no one has ever been, or well, no one from MotoGP has raced at yet. Um, a Portimao in Portugal on the Algarve. Uh, actually, the very first uh, motorcycle race I ever attended as a journalist was the uh, very first. Porting my round of World Superbikes there, so it's uh, I mean it's it's a track that I actually really like, so I um, it has a special place in my heart as well. So, uh, but really, yes, exactly, and that's how we all that's <laughs> how we all know the the track, of course. Yeah, yeah, the first place that David Emmett ever attended as a journalist. It is what it's famous for, you know. It is what it's actually famous for. Before that, we get to look back at Valencia, Valencia 2, the Valencia Grand Prix, and we actually have a world champion. It turns out that someone did want to win it after all, and someone managed to win it, uh, Juan Mir. I mean, what were your thoughts on Juan Mir? Yeah, I mean, uh, great to see Juan uh, win the championship, great to see Suzuki win the championship. I think um, a very uh, well-run um cleverly run and friendly, open, uh, fun team, I think. And, uh, you know, the first champion for them in MotoGP in 20 years, uh, only the sixth rider for Suzuki ever to, to win the, the Premier Class Championship. Um, and if you look at the season as a whole, it would be really hard to argue that Joanne Mir isn't the deserving champion. Um, I think this was probably the the least composed he's been all year um, in Valencia too. You got the distinct feeling that had he not won it at Valencia too, it would have become quite a big, quite a big thing. Like he, I think he essentially told us that on Saturday. It was like I have to get this over, um, not just for the fact that I want to win the championship. It's just because I'm feeling so paranoid about uh, catching the coronavirus. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was probably his meekest showing of uh, 2020 so far. However, he did exactly what he had to do. And uh, that has been, that's been the hallmark of Joanne Mayer's season. Um, he's not always been the fastest guy in 2020, but he has been the steadiest. He's been the smartest. He's been the most consistent. And he has done exactly what he needed to do in these circumstances. Um, and, you know, okay, he's only won one race this year, but uh, I think he's, uh, he's ridden with more intelligence and, and composure than anyone else on the grid this year. Yeah, I mean, this has been a year which has been decided by, um, I mean, by consistency, by intelligence, by by stability and, and uh, not getting carried away, not panicking. Um, because we saw, I mean, the other manufacturers were all up and down. As you say, Juan Mir, you know, it was a 
fairly modest showing, really, for uh, for Mira, only finishing seventh uh, from 12th on the grid. And I think also during qualifying, you really saw that he was getting a bit nervous. He made a mistake with the um, uh, uh, w- with his fast lap, um, couldn't really make any improvement, and really sort of struggled. And it's also it's interesting that these both Suzuki's they were 12th and 14th. Alex Rins uh, getting stuck in. Uh, Q1, uh, and yet last weekend they were front row and second row on the grid. Yeah, that was strange, yeah. Although I think the, the track conditions on Saturday had something to do with that. Uh, we had sort of iffy uh, little showers of rain um, around lunchtime on Saturday, and uh, I think in, in Q1, for example, which Alex Rins was in, um, it started raining in the second half of that session uh, on the final part of the track. So that basically scuppered his chances of getting inside the top two at that point. And then in the in in the in Q2, yeah, Mir just couldn't really put it together. And that's been something we've seen quite often this year. Um, and it was one of those strange races where things were a bit strung out. Morbidelli was setting such a ferocious pace at the front that it, it had a bit of a 800cc era vibe to it you know everyone was running their own pace and they were just inching gradually apart from one another with the exception of uh of Morbidelli and Miller uh, at the end of the race which we'll come on to a bit later um I think if Mir had to he probably could have he could have gone with Rins he could have pushed for um maybe the final podium place if he really put it on the line but yeah he didn't have to he knew what uh, what had to be done and uh, what I think Quartararo and Rins were his closest challengers coming into the Valencian GP. And both of them had a, a shocking day on Saturday as well. So um, I think he was looking at it knowing, you know what, Morbidelli can win and I have to come home in, well, the top 10. Yeah, I mean, Morbidelli was the furthest away. It was, was the furthest behind um, in terms of the championship going into the weekend. Uh, so he was the, the sort of like the least threat. Um, and... The riders who were uh, the you know the, the most dangerous to uh, uh, to Mir, uh, Quattararo, um, Rins, uh, Vinales, Dovi, they were really sort of nowhere. They were um, they all had shockers on Saturday, and they had absolutely atrocious uh, uh, races. But we'll talk about Yamaha and Ducati later on because they deserve um, uh, they de- well they deserve a kicking of their own, um, which we shall. Um, Render to them later on. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yes. The big, uh, big uh, us people, us, uh, us important people who know it all and um, uh, can tell them how they, where they're going wrong. Um, but uh, I mean, how how do you see this championship? I mean, obviously, it was a difficult championship because it was so topsy turvy. Um, it was. Uh, so compressed as well. I think we're all just about at the end of our tethers um, because, you know, three three races back-to-back, it gets really, really brutal. And then sort of, what is it, three, four of them now? Um, it, it, it's a very, very punishing schedule. I mean, how, how do you see, what do you think the key was that Juan Mir won this and nobody else? Uh, I think, well, there's, there's several factors, I think. Um, I think Suzuki being the best bike on the grid has obviously been a, a help. Is it? Is it the, the best, best bike? Bi- is it the best bike on the grid? Because if we look at, um, I mean, just look at the statistics and the Yamaha has seven wins, seven wins from, from 13 races. Yes, but the Yamaha is a very fickle beast, David. And uh, also the Yamaha has been hamstrung 
for the best part of the full season because of uh, some engine issues, which uh, were entirely of their own making. <laughs> um, so I would say that that is a big black spot next to the next to the Yamaha, the 2020 Yamaha as well. And I mean, when the, the 2020 Yamaha has been good, it's been the best bike in the grid, hands down. However, uh, Valencia once again showed that when things are not good, it really is not the best bike in the grid is nowhere near the best bike in the grid. Um, so, yeah, I think the Suzuki has is very complete. It's very stable. It seems to work in most conditions, qualifying accepted. Um, but I also think Mir's um, intelligence, Mir's maturity for just a, a guy who's 23 years old has been massive. Um, I had the good fortune to interview him uh, during lockdown um, in the middle of May, it was, just after he had signed his extension to stay with Suzuki for 21 and 22. And I was just going back today, actually, and reading through some of the things that he had said. And I'd asked him, could this championship calendar, which is unique, could it play into your favor? And he said, you know what, I think it can, because um, because some of the fast rookies coming through, like Binder and Marquez, um, they're probably too inexperienced to make a a bit of a fist of it. And then he said, there's something about this calendar. It's so short and condensed that um, some of the fast guys will be going on attack mode. Um, and yeah, he said, maybe there'll be some difficult situations for the experienced riders, some mistakes that we can take proper from this. And well, lo and behold, that's exactly how how it worked out. And, you know, Mir's, Mir's uh, championship wasn't without faults itself. I mean, he had a pretty ropey start to the year. Um, crashed out of the first race at Hareth. Um, was taken out of the third race of the year uh, at Brno, in part because he had a, a rubbish start and a, a rubbish first couple of laps. Um, however, he basically maintained his belief from that moment. Um, and when he did start to get those podiums, he just built up some momentum and uh, he never tried to override his package, he, he seemed to know exactly what his package was capable of and brought it home to the maximum possible results and along the way picked up some massive scalps. I mean, you think of him robbing Rossi of uh, a podium uh, at the first Misano race. I mean, that was pretty special. Um, managing to keep Alex Rins at bay in the Barcelona race was also impressive, um, even though he finished second. And then beating Rins at the at the European Grand Prix, I mean, that was the... That was the sign of, of a champion. Um, so I think there's there's several different things. But yeah, his maturity um, and his level-headedness, I think, has, has gone a long way this year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the you saw some of that also in the in the way that he responded to questions after um, Jerez, or well, after Valencia won, uh, after the, the, the European Grand Prix, and then uh, before this Grand Prix, where he was saying basically you know yeah of course there's some pressure on me but it's nothing you know if i if i win the championships great if i don't win the championship still great um you know there are people who are losing their jobs people who are losing their ha uh, their homes people who can't feed the feed their families feed themselves um which uh, is a remarkably self aware um I mean, he is a more remarkably self-aware rider, and it's not something which riders often have. Riders live often so intensely inside of a bubble that they are almost 
unaware of what's going on behind uh, uh, around them, and um, that was very much not the case with uh, with Sean. I think uh, the, uh, David Abrivio spoke to us um, after the, the uh, uh, after Sean had won the championship on Sunday night, and he made some interesting comments about the the, the Suzuki coming to the track and always being fast straight from straight from the beginning. Um, uh, and that that was sometimes a bit of a disadvantage at the second races because the others would catch up, and certainly that was the case in this uh, in this race because you know from a one two last uh, last weekend to uh, yeah I, I won't say anonymous but uh, certainly not um, uh, yeah certainly not what they expected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, although if you look back in the history of the season, Mir didn't do badly at uh, the second races at certain tracks. I mean, he was going to win the second race in Austria before that red flag. He got a podium, uh, great second place at the second Misano round. Um, second round in Aragon was maybe a bit of a disappointment, but he was still third. Rinch was still second. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was definitely noticeable at Valencia. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think. It, you mentioned about him being very self-aware and and not having like this massive ego. And you speak to some of the the people that have have worked with him before. Um, I remember speaking to Pete Benson, um, experienced crew chief who worked with Joanne in his single year of Moto Two. Um, this was back in 2018, and Pete was saying that he's he's a completely normal guy. He's one of the most normal guys in the paddock. He said he's actually very similar to Frankie Morbidelli in that um, he's intense. He wants to win. He's super competitive, all the things you expect of a top, top rider. However, he has a really good balance in his life and um, he has another side to him. He has other interests in his life. Um, he didn't start racing until, or he didn't start riding a bike um, until he was 10 years old, which by MotoGP terms is relatively ancient. Um, so he's grown up in an environment when that is not the only thing happening you know like his parents are are are, are quite successful but they they are i guess you could say quite alternative people his dad ran a skate shop when he was a kid in mallorca um and yeah he's he's just a well-balanced guy he's not one of these guys that um i'm sure he sleeps and eats and breathes the sport and is constantly focused on self-improvement. However, you get the impression that if you were to have a, a, a drink with him or go for a meal with him, you would not just be sitting talking about lap times and tires and motorbikes the entire time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so there are some of the uh, some of the riders. You're fairly sure that you would end up talking about uh, the um, uh, the entry to turn three at Misano all uh, all day. Um, and the precise braking point and uh, and tire pressures or whatever, um, but there are others where you you know you know you'd have a wider you could you could end up having quite a wide ranging conversation having you know talking about things that are going on in the world uh, and an awareness of that and I think I mean I mean how how and we basically saw that in his championship press conference because. Uh, Dorna invited Jorge Lorenzo along to ask one or two questions. Lorenzo being another MotoGP world champion from Mallorca, like Mir. And I mean, the difference in both of those guys could not be more profound. Lorenzo ended up talking about himself for the whole time. Um, but he was supposed to be asking Mir a question, um, which didn't reflect well on Jorge, I didn't think. And uh, then asked, so, you know, how are you going to celebrate tonight? Uh, I remember when I won my world championships, we did this and we did that and we had these big parties in Mallorca. And Joanne said, 
Well, there's a bit of a situation in the world, Jorge. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed about this uh, this global pandemic. And so we can't really do anything. And Jorge was like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, it's like, yes, you know, Joanne is plugged into the real world. He is aware of, of normal things that are happening and affecting normal people. Jorge Lorenzo is definitely not. No, exactly. No, exactly. I mean, you know, also Jorge Lorenzo is um, uh, quite well insulated by a very thick stack of money as well. Um uh, but the other thing that I found interesting was that uh, Shuan Mir said in the press conference that, you know, basically like he'd been racing, um, but he had had to win. There was it was never assumed that, you know, his parents were not going to just keep on throwing money at his racing career. If he wanted to go re- uh, uh, racing, then he had to find sort of he, he had to pay for his racing by being successful and finding uh, finding sponsors that way. And so he was very much on a sort of season to season basis. Um, and I think that's for a start, that's very good for your motivation. You see, you soon find out whether it's something you really want to do or not. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it made him much more flexible and adaptable. And he realized, like, okay, I've got to pick this up quickly. Um, and it, so. It's also you're much more precarious. You're, you know, it's a bit like being a freelancer. It can, you know, being a freelancer, it can all end tomorrow, um, because yeah, there, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee beyond sort of like the next uh, the the next job that we do, which you might have. So I think that also sort of concentrates your mind. It makes you much more aware of what's going on uh, uh, around. And I certainly, I mean, it was, it was certainly, a, it was a huge pleasure to see as well because, and also for Suzuki because, like you say, Suzuki is a really, um, they're a really, they're a very small team. They're probably they're either the smallest or the second smallest after Aprilia uh, racing department. Um, and they have, they have the smallest budgets or among the smallest budget may, I don't know if I had to guess, I would say they're probably, you know, maybe 30 or 40% of what Honda, Ducati, Yamaha spend. Um, and so they've had to do it all with ingenuity and smartness. And, uh, it was, you know, really rewarding to see that kind of, um, being clever with your resources, uh, uh, actually coming out on top. Yeah, exactly. Um, being clever with your resources, recruiting the right people, taking calculated risks on certain riders and certain technicians, um, bringing them up from Model 2 whenever they might not be uh, considered one of the, the top picks. Um, you think with some of the riders as well, they've taken risks with the likes of Vinales, who had only done one year in, in Model 2. Uh, Rins, I guess, hadn't exactly set Model 2 alight. He, you know, he ended up uh, stepping up to Model GP without winning the championship in either Model 3 or Model 2. Um, but he's been a, a great selection. Um, and Mir as well. I mean, let's not forget that um, when they were selecting Mir, Jorge Lorenzo was on the market and they had spoken to Jorge Lorenzo, who was in the process of leaving Ducati. Um, and they decided that I think Mir has uh, more potential for longer into the future. And also Mir really wants to join this project, whereas Lorenzo, you got the impression, thought Suzuki was maybe a little bit beneath him or where he where he should be. Um, so, yeah, so they've, they've, they've made fantastic decisions, fantastic recruitment. Um, and you can you can hear by the fact that um, when they do try to, uh, or, or, or sorry, when other teams try to maybe recruit some of their members, 
um, they generally don't want to leave Suzuki. Yeah, yeah, because you really, I mean, that's that's one thing you get. You do get a real sense that this is like a, a, a team that you want to be in. There are a few teams like that. Petronas Yamaha team is another one um, uh, like that, where the atmosphere within the team is actually really, really good. And that's very difficult, especially for factory teams. Uh, the pressure tends to be bigger in factory teams and also... Um, the rivalries tend to be a little bit more intense. The um, it's a much more it's a much more impersonal relationship that uh, mechanics and engineers have with uh, with their employer. Um, if you look at, I mean, you know, the prime example is something like Tech Three, uh, a private team where it's almost like a group of people who live quite close together and um, a group of yeah a family uh, a proper family affair um, where they all work together whereas it, that is very much not the vibe in factory teams and i think sometimes it can cause uh, it can cause uh, problems um, in factory teams um one more question for you neil um if mark marcus hadn't um hurt himself would this have been a very different championship would uh, would would you and me still have had a chance um I mean, let's if if you maybe um, frame that question a little bit differently. If we had a normal championship and we put Joan Mir from this year against Mark Marquez at the level he showed at the first race of the season, um, then probably not. But then I don't think anyone would have um, because Marquez, as we saw last year, and maybe even in the first race at Jerez, was operating on a different level to everyone else. Um, however. Um, I don't think this championship deserves to be clouded in such a way or, or framed in such a way just because Mark crashed um, because of a mistake that he made. Uh, he made two pretty big mistakes in that first race. Um, and then he made a pretty big mistake in trying to come back as soon as he did. And obviously he got some bad advice. Um, you maybe could have questioned the team's decision to allow him to come back. But essentially that was Mark trying to come back so soon after an injury, which usually takes the best part of, I don't know how many months to, to mend. Um, so I think if Mark is, has been watching this year, which he obviously has been, um, he's looking at me and he's thinking, there's still some weak points there that I could definitely, um, I could definitely take advantage of qualifying, um, starting probably Marquez probably thinks if I, if I get pole position and just go like hell from the start, who cares if Mir is fast at the end? Um, however, we're still talking about a guy that's in the fifth, his fifth season at world championship level. Um, I mean, not even Rossi or Marquez won a championship in their fifth season on the world um, stage, a MotoGP championship, I should say. Um, so I mean, we're not looking at the finished product here with Mir. Um, we're looking at a guy that uh, still has quite a significant uh, area to improve. Yeah, yes, definitely. I mean, there's a, there is uh, still a lot of potential left uh, and some potential there as well. I mean, for me, uh, you pointed out extremely well. I mean, Mar Marquez was in this championship and he managed to take himself out of this championship all on his own. Like you say, two big mistakes and um, he managed to ex injure himself severe, very severely. So you do... Wonder also because of those mistakes. It reminded me a little bit of 2015, the the, the start of the 2015 championship where we got to Qatar and uh, Mark looks really really fast, and then um, the, the lights go out, they all blast off the line and go into to, into turn one, and Mark Marquez ends up sort of deep in the gravel in turn one and has to come through the field. 
Um, and that was the first sign that, okay, there's something wrong. Um, and I wonder if that was also a sign um, that there was something fundamentally wrong with the Honda um, or fundamentally difficult for the Honda. Because we've seen the Honda be good. I mean, you know, Takanakagami's been very good. Alex Marcus has had a, had, has had a few races. Well, Cal Grutzlow, unfortunately, uh, managed to bang himself up and has had a, a fairly uh, sort of miserable season. But um, uh, there have been some, you know, there have been some strong performances, but there have also been some really, really dismal performances as well. There have been some really, they've had times when they've really struggled. So um, clearly there was, uh, there were problems with that bike and um, Mark Marcus sort of paid the price for it. Um, I think we need to talk about the race because there was a race as well. And it turned out that um, at um, uh, the, the two truths that we knew about MotoGP were that you can't overtake on a Yamaha and you can't overtake at Valencia. And especially the overtaking part at Valencia. I mean, in all three classes, the last laps were absolutely scintillating. They were absolutely, they were yeah proper breathtaking um, uh, mental all out um, uh, stuff. Yeah, we have to uh, thank, I think we all need to send a little thank you note to, to Jack Miller for making this a, a really memorable occasion because for two thirds of it, it was looking as though it was going to just peter out into something rather insignificant, something you would you would forget about the day after witnessing it. Um, just because Morbidelli at the start was ferocious, uh, really, really quick pace and uh, Miller then rallied late on and it was just, wonderfully poised going into the last lap and obviously I think there were four changes of the lead in the first five turns um, Miller came very very close to retaking the lead uh, twice I think after Morbidelli had made the decisive move um, and yeah I think there's reason to say that this was probably the best ride of both of those guys careers um, in, in MotoGP at least um, because Franco not only set a great pace from the start but he showed he had real fighting qualities and uh, Jack Miller was running the medium front tire as opposed to the hard front which everyone else ran um, and proved that um, when the setting is right when he is well placed and when he's at a track that, that works to his sort of riding style um, he can manage the tires manage the race in a very uh, intelligent way and um and you know he came so so close, and it was a, it was a fast fast race compared to the week before. Obviously, they didn't have any dry setup time before the European Grand Prix, but this was a really fast race. So you know, kudos to kudos to both guys. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jack Miller said he had a plan, and he certainly had a plan. Um, he sat there and waited and bided his time and waited for the uh, waited for the end of the race, and. Um, uh, started closing the gap and came very, very close. Uh, he had some tailwind pushing him into turn one, which he said sort of pushed him a bit wide and upset him a little bit. Um, but then the, the 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 passes were absolutely just just, just absolutely picture perfect. Um, I particularly enjoyed uh, the the pass at turn five, um, Morbidelli taking the lead back, where Morbidelli said afterwards was. I didn't care. They, uh, all I knew was I was going underneath him, and I was going to I was going to come out in front of him, and it didn't matter what happened. I was going underneath him. So yeah, that was uh, it, it. It made for an absolutely superb uh, finale, and uh, yeah, I think it actually adds to the um, as you say, it adds to the to, to the stature of the occasion to have a, a proper proper race. 
uh, at the end to, to sort of cap it off. Um, uh, the thing about these bikes, I mean, obviously fantastic race by both of them. I mean, we knew right from the start, all through practice, that uh, Morbidelli was had to be the favourite because he was just um, he was superb right from the right from the very beginning. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's uh, it was a bit of a um, bit of a repeat of what we saw at Aragon too. Um, Morbidelli and his crew chief Ramon Forcada managed to work out exactly where the bike's weaknesses were from the previous weekend, work on them, work on them some more, and devise a strategy that would basically allow them to to win at the front of the race. And that strategy that Morbidelli puts into practice is starting from pole or starting from the front row, getting a great getaway, and and basically doing what Jorge Lorenzo used to do in that on the Yamaha. Um, and and Morbidelli has moved up to such a, a fantastic level this year. I mean, I wasn't sure whether he could win races, uh, to be honest, in, in 2020, but I certainly didn't think he would be handing his teammates his, his arse, basically, for, you know, most of the season. Um, and he's intelligent, he works at it, and he's shown that he's a remarkable level of self-belief because I don't think there are many riders in the world that could have taken what Mobidelli took last year, which was a rookie teammate coming into a team and just blazing you. Um, and he managed to have the self-belief and the self-awareness that, okay, maybe there's some things I really need to work on away from the track. And he, he did that um, over the off-season. And uh, yeah, obviously there's there's some things with the the Yamahas and, and the M1s, the, the 2020 bike at Valencia just was nowhere. Um, Quartararo was... Awful. I mean, really, just nowhere from from the first session until the race. Uh, the Vinales was was very poor as well. Uh, Rossi was never in the game. Um, but I think on Sunday night, Rossi said we can't just put this down to the bike because Franco was making a difference today. Yeah, absolutely. Valentino Rossi said that basically, you know, Frankie is the best MotoGP rider in the world at the moment. Um, and on the strength of the, you know his performances in what. He's won uh, the two of the last three races. Yeah, three races in total, and two of the last uh, and uh, was it two of the last three? Um, that is that I think counts very much as dominant form. Uh, so yes, um, it's been extremely impressive by uh, uh, by Morbidelli, um, and there is there. I mean, it it feels like there's a. Um, uh, uh, it feels like there's sort of a, a a bit of a change in his demeanour as well. He seems to be uh, quieter, calmer, also briefer, more curt, uh, more more curt, uh, more. Uh, he, he, he's spending less time telling us things. He's um, spending. He's wasting less of his words uh, on us poor journalists, um, which is. Interesting, which seems to come from a place of confidence, as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's always uh, he's always pretty cool and um, pretty sparse on occasion. Uh, if he receives a question that he doesn't think is a is a great question, you, he'll certainly let you know that he thinks it was a pretty dumb question um, by giving you a bit of a short shrift, but not in a rude way. He's like a, he's a, he's a cool, personable guy, but. Yeah, um, what's really impressive is just the, the kind of the concentration levels um, that he has. Like he said, I think in, in Aragon that 
where he reached was like a tunnel that Senna used to talk about, where you're almost uh, looking down on yourself. Um, he said it was like a, a trip, you know, it was just something he couldn't really put into words. Um, and yeah, you look at his performances when he's been winning this year and it has been like that. He's just been so precise, so consistent um, that, that no one can keep up. Yeah, absolutely. I also, I mean, like I have a personal theory as well about he is on the 2019 bike. He's also been told that next year he'll be on the 2019 bike and he's pretending that that doesn't matter. Um, but I really get a strong sense that it, that underdog role uh, is extremely motivating for him. He really feeds off of that sort of under, underdog energy um, to show them what he's capable of. And I think that has certainly driven, uh, driven him on. And I think it is, as Valentino Rossi said, a lot. Of, so much of this is about uh, the rider rather than the bike. Um, this is the rider finding it within himself. And this is also... The, the strength of a satellite rider can sometimes be that you know what you've got and you're stuck with it. That's all you've got. You just have to deal with it. So you don't even bother um, hoping for something from the bike, looking for something from the bike. There is only one thing that you that you that can change, which can make you faster, and that's you. Uh, so it makes you look for look inside yourself for improvement. And I think that's definitely been the case with uh, with Franco Morbidelli. Um, uh, let, let's get to the bikes because the most interesting thing is that um, it was the satellite teams who actually won and not the factory teams. Uh, now, obviously, Jack Miller's on a, a GP20, but uh, Yamaha is uh, the uh, Morbidelli's on the 2019 Yamaha. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. We've touched on this a little bit, but why is uh, why is Franco Morbidelli and, and Jack Miller so fast? Where Andrea Dovizioso and um, Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quartararo aren't? Um, I think it's partly a rider thing. Um, I think you just mentioned it there, or you touched on it there, that Franco has a has a mindset where he's aware of the bike's limitations, but he's also aware of its strengths, and he is determined to blank out the limitations and just focus on the strengths. He's, he's, he's made that quite known um, in the last couple of weeks. I think with Jack Miller as well, I mean, it, he's, a, he's a really, really strong rider at Valencia and always has been historically, uh, right the way back to Model 3. Um, last year, he outperformed Davizioso quite, well, not comprehensively, but um, enough to basically score a podium in the final race of the year of 19. Um, Davizioso has never been that great at Valencia. Uh, Petrucci's never been that great at Valencia either. Um, so I think that is a factor we have to take into into account here. Um, and then, I mean, it's, it's tough to say exactly what what's up with the 2020 um, M1. But um, what we do know is that basically from the first tests of the year in Sepang, um, Quartararo and Vinales both mentioned that they didn't feel as comfortable on the 2020 bike. However, the lap times were, were really strong. And it seems as though that is what essentially, um, that is essentially what led them to both choose that machine um, over the 2019 bike. Um, and it just seems that from what they say, when there is good grip on track, um, when we go to a, a grippy track surface, then the bike is phenomenal. Um, boom, it, there's not much grip there, then it, it does struggle quite, quite a bit. Um, but it's, it's quite puzzling. Um, and from such a position of strength, 
at the end of 2019, I mean, Yamaha really did look as though they had solved so many of their issues at the end of last year. Um, we're now back to that same old feeling of bit of confusion, riders sniping at the factory and its working methods, and maybe the, the thinking isn't so joined up between the team and the factory. Um, you know, all those old criticisms that we heard Vinales and Rossi make at the end of 2017 or at the end of 2018 are suddenly back again. And you just have to wonder, how has it got to this? Because at the start of this year, they just looked so good. Yeah. I mean, uh, also, they kick off the year with uh, first and second places at the first two rounds. Um, which suggests that you know the 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 bike is not so bad. Um, now they obviously managed to as you pointed out, they managed to sabotage themselves with the valves, um, uh, running illegal valves, and that has meant that they've had to run thirteen races on a very limited set of uh, uh, set of engines. Uh, but then Franco Morbidelli has basically uh, run almost an entire season on just two engines, and he managed to win a race on a, on an engine which was extremely old. Um, so it's not uh, it, it's not as if there's uh, a lack there, and it also makes you wonder about next year in the sense that um, this year they've had to turn the revs down to be able to uh, preserve the engine until the end. Um, it'll also be interesting to see if they sort of turn it back up a little bit at the uh, at the end of the season as well, because you know one more race to go, you might as well give the thing its uh, its uh, its druthers and um, uh, let it go. And because if it goes bang in the last race, then it doesn't really make all that much uh, all that much difference. Um, but I think if they are better organised next uh, next year, then that that should make a difference. Um, but it does seem that the 2020 bike is uh, a little better. The engine, I believe, is a little bit more aggressive. It's a little more finicky to set up. It seems to be that the when the bike is good, it's fantastic. When it's not good, then it's a, a lot more difficult. Um, that, I think, is really going to be uh, a, a big question mark next year, uh, especially as they can't change the engine for next year. Um, they are sort of like stuck with this, uh, although it's still not entirely clear to me. It's something that I mean to keep looking up, whether Maverick Vinales and Fabio Quattararo and uh, uh, Valentino Rossi can actually use the 2019 bike, switch back to the 2019 bike, which is homologated um, for, uh, for 2021, which would be an interesting but sort of strange development and really uh, a confession that they took the wrong uh, a wrong turning the other the other problem of course is the lack of testing they haven't had any testing you know they they paid Jorge Lorenzo a lot of money and he sat in his um well first of all he, I think he spent about two months in Dubai waiting to get a flight home uh, and then he spent all of his time in Lugano um but Yamaha couldn't get any engineers over to assist a test do you think that pay do you think that uh, cost them, cost Yamaha development and, and sorting the bike out? I think that was one of the factors that cost them, absolutely. Uh, you compare that to Honda. I mean, Bradle, poor Stefan Bradle has had just the, the most ridiculously intense uh, half year of his life, um, balancing his full-time racing duties with testing duties. Um, and you compare that to KTM. I mean, KTM have turned up at a couple of tracks this year where Danny Pedrosa has been there 
a matter of weeks before, and they basically know which tar compounds to use going off Pedroza's data. I mean, Yamaha don't have any of that. And next year, I guess they will have Cal Crutchlow in, in their team, and that should be a that should be a, a thing that helps them. Um, but I mean, yeah, I think if you speak to someone like Thomas Bojard, our French colleague that's been on the show a couple of times, um, he obviously knows some people around Quattararo's camp, and I do think the steps that Yamaha had to take with the engines after Hareth to ensure that they went the full season. I mean, I do think that. It is a big loss of performance and maybe early into next year, the riders will be able to talk a little bit more about just how big that performance change was. But yeah, I think that has to be the biggest factor that um, that is uh, that has held them back. Yeah, that they were really penalised for the for, for for basically the mistake that Yamaha made uh, at the start of the season. Andrea Dovicioso, I actually thought that Dovicioso in the end had a, a pretty decent race because he came through from 17th to, what is it, 8th. Um, um, uh, obviously, he got past Alicia Spargaro, much to Alicia Spargaro's chagrin, um, because the, the Ducati is just a rocket ship. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, w- what went wrong for Dovizioso? Um, qualifying, I think, was was what went wrong for for Dovizioso um, because it was, yeah, as you say, like a decent race. Um, he had pretty good pace um, through free practice, I think, as well, um, and yeah, was basically just uh, penalised for I think the conditions towards the end of, of Q one where it started raining halfway through the session, um, and uh, you know he just hadn't got into a rhythm or, or basically. He wasn't able to pull a hat out of the bag. Sorry, a lap out of the hat. Uh, or can you say out of the hat, out of the bag? Out of the bag. Um, in the first half of Q1. Um, a lap out so of the yeah. hat, out of the bag. <laughs> That's it. I knew you would get there eventually. Um, but yes, I mean, I think qualifying was a was a big a big penalty for him. And yeah, I mean, has Davizioso ever truly felt comfortable uh, on the Ducati this year? I really don't think... That's been the case. Um, if even when he won at Austria, won he, he didn't really. I mean, he didn't really look like uh, a you know like it was coming naturally to him. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and there's not really other than Austria one. There's not really been any race where he's he's looked fast at all. Um, and I think um, I think a good part of that is the fact that basically one of the secrets of the previous years how Davizioso and Ducati almost uh, countered some of the notorious turning issues that they, uh, they well, he has always spoken of, um, was he, he basically found a quite a decent and interesting way to, to use the brakes um, to his advantage and almost use the rear brake to slide the bike on the corner entry, which would turn the bike in a way. And he's just not been able to do that at all this year um, with, the, with the kind of new 2020 rear Michelin. Um, so that's that's been a factor. So yeah, um, I don't think Davidsius has ever got his head around that because his riding style was so specific to late braking and and braking strongly. And he's what thirty four years old now. Like it is difficult for him to to, to adapt to that and, and to change his style. And the likes of Sarko, who has no previous experience in the Ducati, Miller, who's still young, um, Banyaya, who has little experience on the Ducati. I mean, these are guys that on occasion could adapt. Um, but Davizioso just has never really managed to fully get comfortable. 
No, exactly. And uh, next year he takes a sabbatical and then the question is whether there is... A, I mean, he, he takes a sabbatical with the intention of coming back in uh, 2022. But the question is, will there be a, a space for him in 2022? And I'm not convinced that there will be. No, no, exactly. Yeah, it does look like a, a de facto retirement, um, which is which is a shame. But but the situation you feel within Jakadi has just got with the Vizioso has, has got quite toxic, and it's it's probably for the best. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was there, there was no point. Um, moving on to uh, KTM, Paul Spargaro took the last. Uh, uh, last podium place. Now, Valencia has always been a good track for Polis Bagra. Polis Bagra absolutely loves the place. Um, he's already had a, a podium here. Uh, but what was impressive is that we saw three KTMs in the top six. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the previous week, I think there were three KTMs in the top seven. So it's a, it's a proof package around the Ricardo Tomo circuit. Um, it was... It was another, yeah, really impressive weekend. Um, we know that bike is is fantastic on the brakes. Um, and I think it was quite nice to hear Paul Espargaro say we were absolutely smashing it on the brakes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. And uh, Morbidelli rode a, a sensational race, but for Espargaro, I think he was just two seconds down at the flag. Um, was was seriously impressive. Um, and he's had, what, five podiums now in the last nine races? That is, for KTM, I mean, that is really impressive stuff. And considering that they've also had wins with Binder and Oliveira. Um, and it's it's proof again that, yes, there was a, a little lull. Uh, they had a few difficult weekends in Barcelona and in um, Le Mans and at the first Aragon. But they've shown that they've got a, a spectacularly effective working method. Um, and they can work through problems with time. And uh, an experience, and and you know they've got four very good riders. Um, they only had three this weekend because Lekawana tested positive for the the coronavirus. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think um, I, I think it's 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 proof again that the RC sixteen this year is is a really strong bike, maybe behind the Suzuki, but one of the strongest bikes on the grid. Yeah, um, if you had to choose, what would you take? Would you take a, K- a uh, would you take an RC sixteen, a KTM, or would you take a Yamaha M one? Uh, a nineteen or a twenty? Ah, it's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd probably take uh, Morbidelli's M one. Yeah, 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 and put uh, Franco Morbidelli on it. Yes, yes, but I mean, the fact that we're even comparing the yep. two bikes is uh, is quite something. Exactly. If you if you think about what we were saying last year. Uh, about the KTM that you know hopefully they could make it they could make a step and make, and be regularly on the podium and they've won two races and they, and they've they really have made I mean it's it's you know it's 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 a MotoGP bike now you know it's just it's just a MotoGP bike um there's no it it's one of those bikes which is capable of getting on the podium uh, of winning um Polos Bagra unfortunately still can't manage to win on the uh, uh, on the bike even though he desperately wants a win and I mean you would definitely, you would want him to have a win on the uh, uh, on the KTM before he leaves because he's put so much work in, but uh, he's got to actually deserve it, and he hasn't uh, he hasn't quite sort of put it all together. Um, but like you say, five podiums that is very impressive. Yeah, and Brad Binder in fifth, uh, four seconds off the race winner, and talking as though he, someone had smothered his cat 
basically afterwards he was that well he wasn't really upset but he was you know you got the impression he was pretty cheesed off and at one point in his debrief he said i have to remind myself that i'm still a rookie you know and this should be a good result but yeah he, he, his body language and then his words and his tone certainly didn't indicate that he was satisfied but i mean yeah he's not satisfied with finishing four seconds behind the race winner and he's fifth you know so um you know, just I, I think Brad Binder and and that package next year is, is going to be is going to be pretty impressive, pretty pretty strong. Yeah, and Oliveira obviously came sixth, um, uh, and he had a pretty good race as well. He lost sort of a bit of pace in the second half of the uh, of the race, um, but that's going to be quite a factory team next year. It is, yeah, and I, I just can't wait to see what Oliveira can do in Portimao. I'm very intrigued to see whether his knowledge of the track from track days um, has any kind of effect on his performance. Um, you know, will it be like when we went to Laguna for the first time in 05 and Hayden and Edwards were, you know, one and two um, and super strong from the start? Um, I don't think it's different because Oliveira hasn't been riding around here on world superbikes and, and racing here at the nearly the, the highest level. But yeah, will the, I mean, it's quite a complex track. It's a difficult track to learn. And, and you know, could Oliveira do something special at home? I think that's going to be really exciting to see. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. It's also going to be really interesting to see which bikes this track suits. I, I think it's going to be really difficult to actually say that. We asked Oliveira and he said, well, we don't know. Also about the advantage of, it, of him having been around there so often. He said, yeah, that's going to last about 10 minutes until the rest of them figure it out. So um, I'm not sure if the tra- I'm not sure. The thing about Laguna is there was there was one or two places at Laguna where you could make up a lot of ground um, once you figured them out. Um, I'm not sure whether that is the case at Portimao, but that's also because I don't feel I know the track well enough to actually sort of, you know, make that judgment. But I, I think it's definitely something we are uh, we are going to find out. And you know, will it be the experience of uh, around Portimao which uh, gives Oliveira a boost, or will it be the fact that it is very much his home round? You know, I mean, it's, it, even though there won't be any fans there. There are going to be a, there's going to be a lot of a lot more Portuguese media, a lot more interest. I mean, we've seen that already this year, even in the Zoom debriefs, that there's a um, uh, a large uh, Portuguese contingent um, in there wanting to talk to uh, Oliveira. Uh, uh, obviously, that's what sort of local success gets you, really. Yeah, exactly. And you know, Oliveira, I think, take Cristiano Ronaldo out of the equation, and Oliveira's one of the, if not the most famous sportsman in Portugal. You know, he's a big, big deal here. So, uh, yeah, a lot of pride is uh, is going to be on the line this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. My, I have a friend who moved to uh, Portugal recently and he's um, uh, he always tells me that it, um, uh, Miguel is always on the news. Sort of, uh, he, knows, he knows exactly what's going on on MotoGP because Miguel Oliveira is on the news. So uh, that's, uh, that's it. I think... Um, we need to uh, take a look at uh, Moto2 and Moto3. Um, obviously, exciting. I mean, like in MotoGP, we finally had someone who wanted to win a championship. And in Moto2 and Moto3, that was um, a little bit uh, less the case, really, wasn't it? Uh, let's go to, well, to start off with Moto3. What's happening in Moto3? Uh, in Moto3, we've got uh, three gentlemen uh, covered by 11 points heading towards the last round. Uh, we have Albert Arenas leading the championship by eight from Igura and then Tony Arbolino's third, 11 points back. Um, Arenas, I think, rode a pretty 
clever race in Valencia. Didn't do anything that spectacular, but brought some important points home uh, in fourth. Um, was able to respond to Darren Binder uh, on the final lap whenever Binder tried to get past. Um, knowing that uh, Ayagura was, you know, a couple of positions behind. Um, so he extended his lead by five points. Um, I think Arenas has been the class act of Model 3 this year. Um, I mean, it's not exactly been one of the most convincing championships we've ever seen. Um, but it's a little bit like the Joanne Mir thing in that he's generally done what he's had to do. And he's had some pretty bad luck along the way um, for the NFs, but two of those weren't weren't really his fault. Um, but uh, Agura has been in ropey form recently. Um, but Tony Orbelino is is coming strong. Um, he just misjudged his uh, his podium attack at the European Grand Prix, but he got it absolutely right uh, this time around. Um, super fast, managed to reel in Ralph Fernandez, the early leader. Um, and yeah, Arbolino, I think, is, you know, one of the fastest guys um, in the class. And this is going to be a wonderful final round because you know what Model 3 racing is like, how close it is. And if we have all three championship challengers in the leading group, I mean, the, the, per- the permutations are going to be changing lap by lap and it's just going to be really, really dramatic. I can't wait for it, to be honest. Um, and it's it's tough to call. I think Arenas just has enough in hand to to be the comfortable favourite, but it's Moto3 and you never know. Yeah, exactly. But the, the other thing is, it is absolutely all out at uh, around Portimao. It's, uh, the, the, no one has to keep anything in hand uh, and because, you know, you can risk injury now. It doesn't make any difference. If you fall off in a race, you fall off in a race and hurt yourself. But that's uh, that, that's not going to be important for the rest of the season because there's not going to be very much testing until sort of early next year anyway. Um, uh, so you won't miss any, you won't miss any testing, um, and yeah, this is the only really the only race that um, uh, that counts. Uh, yeah, I, I thought Arbolino rode a really really good race. It really looked like Farrell Fernandez had it in the bag, um, but uh, but he really didn't. It looked like being almost a bit of a dull race for a little while, but then it sort of uh, really livened up at the uh, uh, at the end. And yeah, Arbolino definitely deserved winner. Um, one by over once, one by over one second. The first time that's happened to Model Three since um, Aragon last year. That is um, quite it. Well, there you go. That's how how how, how that is quite close. The racing in that uh, in that Moto Three. Um, in Moto Two, obviously Sam Lowe's uh, managed to really hurt himself in the last race with the, and, and and hurt his wrist. We saw also pictures of his uh, uh, of his wrist on Monday on Instagram. Um, and it did look absolutely horrific. He got some important points to keep himself in the championship, uh, but Anea Bastianini didn't manage to capitalise. Yeah, it wasn't the, wasn't the best performance from Bastianini. Um, you know, sixth place was was okay. Um, he was what two seconds off the winner, um, but he never really looked like he was uh, he was going to win. But again, he did what he just had to do because Lowe's um, banged up his right hand. Something shocking on. Uh, on Saturday, um, my commentary colleague Matt Dunn and I were walking back from the commentary booth after Moto Two FP Three, and the medical centre is just next to where our commentary booth was. So as we walked past the medical centre, there were some Mark VDS people standing there, and Alec Close was standing there as well. And uh, we just we kind of 
we made the motion, like the, the fingers crossed the motion. And Alex rode past us and just said, it's fucked. So from that, we were like, oh God, it's, uh, it, I mean, it, he's broken his hand or he's broken his wrist. Um, it, it seemed that that was the, the first, obviously the first impression that, that both of those boys had. Like that was the kind of the pain that Sam was in. Um, but I mean, remarkable really. Uh, if you saw that photo on, on Twitter that he posted on Monday, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a double hand. It's, uh, it's, it's so swollen. And the fact that he managed to put 25 laps together in that condition and, and score two points was nothing short of heroic. Uh, he really had to dig in. Um, it's just a, it's just a shame that, you know, he doesn't, or he won't have two weeks maybe to rest up and, and get a little bit better, um, before this weekend, because Portimao is a physical old track as well. Um, and to overturn a 14 point deficit as it is now in the championship, that's a, it's a big, big ask. Is there any advantage to the fact that he's obviously raced around there on the, in, in, in world Supersport? Does that give him an advantage knowing the track? I would say so, yeah. I mean, he's, he's raced around there. I think he's won there in World Supersport. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly an advantage. Um, however, that might be offset by his physical um, yeah, his physical condition. Um, but you also have to take into account that Lowe's has been riding this year not 100% fit. I mean, he, he busted up his shoulder at the start of the year, um, pre-season testing. Got a little bit fortunate with the, the COVID thing in, in that he only ended up missing one race. Um, but he, he's came back. He's come back and he's been very strong. But I don't think he's really been letting on just how how much that the shoulder has been causing him issues. He says that it doesn't cause him so many issues on the bike. But I think he's playing that down quite a bit. Um, so he's someone that knows how to grit his teeth and, and to dig in. Um, and Bastianini's just so cool and calm and relaxed. He's so difficult to read. You don't know whether he's, that's just the way he is, or is that a, a front of him masking the kind of nerves that he's feeling inside? Um, I don't know. Um, so I think it's, this is one is, is quite interesting as well, because Bastianini has been, has been really good this year, but it's not always been that convincing. There have been the occasional wobbles. Um, and, uh, I, you know, it's certainly not a given that he can come home and win this weekend. Yeah. It looked like we had, Fa we, we were going to have a new one with Fabio Di Gian Antonio. Um, but he managed to throw it all away on the last lap. Yeah. He pissed it all away. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's twice now in three races that, sorry, in four races that, uh, Di Gia has basically crashed as soon as he's got into the lead. He did that at the first Aragon round. Um, and, uh, yeah. He did it again here. I mean, it was he had the race in the bag and just needlessly crashed at the at turn six in the final lap. And basically, um, he had passed Bezeki prior to that um, for the lead a couple of laps before, and immediately made a massive mistake at the final turn and basically gave Bezeki the lead back. So there was a little bit of composure that is necessary in Digi's game, I think, for him to to eventually get get the deal done. That that much is clear. Um, the speed's there, but uh, that last little bit is missing. Yeah, and uh, Jorge Martin went on to win, beating Hector Garzo, which is, uh, I mean, I, that's to me, that's quite pleasing, um, seeing Garzo actually win that because, um, you know, someone who's been in the Moto E Championship uh, or well, in, in the Moto E Cup, um, 
sort of moved around looking for a uh, looking for a ride, coming in as a replacement, and then uh, actually he he rode a really really impressive race, uh, beating Bezeki, um, uh, coming very close, very close indeed to beating uh, uh, Martin, but Martin actually carried it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That no, was a great race. Fantastic, fantastic final lap in Model Two. I think it was the best Model Two race we've had all year. Um, it was pretty cool seeing Bezeki. Martin and uh, Digia all fighting at the front because those were the guys that were consistently fighting at the front of the Moto3 championship in 2018. Um, and, you know, they're a really talented trio. And as you say, Garzo has, has been very, very strong in the second half of the year. Um, really has figured out this, uh, this Moto2 thing after a year in Moto E last year. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's good to see he's a, he's a strong rider. Um, and it's quite, crazy to think that he might not even be in that team next year. I mean, there are strong rumours that Cito Pons is going to put his son Edgar uh, in the team next year alongside Manzi. Um, but after a performance like that, or a couple of performances like Garza was produced recently, uh, I don't see how Cito could do that. How, could, how he could justify that. Yeah, and Edgar hasn't really sort of, when he has been in the uh, uh, in the Grand Prix uh, paddock, he hasn't really set the world alight um, uh, He's, um, you know, he, he's been he's been decent, but not outstanding. And if you had to choose, if you had to choose, you would, I think, uh, yeah, you definitely go with uh, with Garzo. Uh, before we go to our winners and losers, I'm going to put you on the spot, um, Mister uh, Mister Morrison, because you are the uh, resident uh, Paddock Pass podcast Moto Two and Moto Three uh, uh, expert. So, who's going to win? Who's going to win the championship? <laughs> By expert, you mean the only person that watches Moto Two and Moto Three. Well, watches all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. To be fair, there's not many people in the world that watch all of it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, but um, who's going to win both championships? I think I, I think Bastia's going to going to do it. Fourteen, uh, yeah, fourteen points is a that's a big advantage. Um, it, it would require quite a meltdown to lose it from there. Um, and I think, I mean, quite boring really, but I think um, Arenas is going to win Model 3 as well because I think he's just been the most composed guy out of the championship challenges all year, the most consistent as well. Yeah, so again, it's going to be consistency. Uh, it's going to be a question of consistency coming through and actually winning out in Model 3. Yeah. What about you, Div? I, I mean, honestly, you're the expert. You would know. I would probably, I mean, I would probably agree, um, but I have... I would just really like to see Ayugura win in uh, in Moto Three just to have a ja another Japanese championship because uh, I so often growing up uh, watching the races, uh, you know, also in my in my twenties and thirties, um, watching these great Japanese riders in the one two five championship, the Uedas and the Uis and uh, and all the rest of them that I just really really like, and I think it would be really really good for. Um, uh, for racing in Japan to have a, to have a Japanese and also in Asia to have a Japanese uh, uh, champion, um, but yeah, I mean Albert Arenas is arguably the best Moto Three rider at the moment just because he's the most complete and has, and manages to always keep it together. So yeah, I can uh, I suspect that it's going to be uh, Arenas and um, uh, and the head will win over the heart. Right, so um, on to the segment. The one that um, some people have been waiting for, no doubt. Um, who is your big winner, Mr. Morrison? Uh, my big winner is going to be um, Paul Espargaro. 
um, because I think there was a time this year when it appeared as though Paul Espargaro had not only shot himself in the foot for leaving KTM, uh, when the bike is actually fantastic for Honda, when the bike is maybe not, um, but also that he didn't quite have the temperament uh, to manage races and to succeed in races. Um, however, I feel in the last, what, nine races that we've had, Paul has shown pretty much the opposite. He's managed to be consistent, he's managed to be complete, and he's managed to outrace his fellow KTM riders, which uh, at the start of the year he wasn't managing. So um, I think uh, Paul has had a really, really strong second half of the year. Um, and chapeau. I it is hard to argue with that, but I am going to argue with that um, because for me, my big winner is Suzuki. Um, they have really put everything together. David Abrevio, especially what David Abrevio has built at uh, the start of this project, he was bought in to build the championship winning team or a race, you know, a, a race winning bike. He's been uh, superb at building a team. Uh, hiring the right mechanics and uh, creating a real team atmosphere. He's been superb at rider selection. He's been very good uh, at choosing the right riders. He's occasionally he's had to persuade the Japanese um, uh, Japanese management that look, we really need to get this guy um, because we think he's going to be. I think that was the case with Juan Mir, for example. They were not entirely Yamaha or sorry Suzuki were not entirely convinced. Uh, that uh, Juan Mir was going to be the right cho choice, but um, Brivio pushed it through and it has really, really paid off big. So, yeah, I mean, Suzuki getting a championship again after 20 years in their centenary year. This is the 100th uh, year of Suzuki. I think it's 60 years of racing as well. So there's lots and lots of um, uh, nice round numbers involved. Um, yeah, it, it, it's this feels this also really feels like a Suzuki championship, like it was the package. This was not Juan Mir being brilliant on his own, even though he was brilliant, he was really, really good this year. Um, but this is very much a team championship. The team did this, and Suzuki did this, and Sylvain Guintoli did this with all of the test riding. Um, you know, this one belongs to the whole to all of Suzuki, I think. Um, and you're a loser. I'm really trying hard not to pick Fabio Quartararo um, because I feel like I've maybe picked him a lot recently. Um, but Fabio Quartararo, um, <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't. It, it just was. It was just terrible from start to finish, wasn't it? Um, and you just wonder how much of that terrible weekend was the bike, and how much of it was. Fabio has just basically sunk into a bit of a hole. Every, I mean, this season has not turned out anything like he imagined it would have turned out. Uh, not only has he lost the championship and lost it quite badly, but, um, you know, he's been outperformed by his teammates. Um, and it was, I mean, it was a, a race that really lacked any form of composure whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it was... It was The last two um, races... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were, you know, they were poor races, basically. Um, and he, he told us that this was going to be the place where he, he made points back in Mir, you know, and, and Valencia was just nothing short of disastrous for him both times. So uh, he nearly T-boned Vinales at the second turn, uh, ran off, rejoined last. That was bad. And then crashed trying to come through the field. Um, yeah, it's 
it was difficult for him. Um, and it, it's been a pretty disappointing year. Um, I, for one, had him down to win the championship after leaving Harris. I think I wasn't alone in that. And uh, we had built him up quite a lot after some just outrageous performances last year. Um, he is a quite incredible talent, but uh, yeah, when it's when it's not going well, um, yeah, there is. It's yeah, when it's not going well, it's not going well. <laughs> that's the kind of that's the kind of insight that you can get on the <clears throat> Panic Pass podcast. That's right. Yeah. You don't get that kind of insight anywhere else. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a good job you picked uh, Fabio Quartararo because otherwise I was going to pick uh, Fabio Quartararo because uh, b- because of everything you said. It's just been shocking. It really feels like uh, his head is gone. Um, but instead, I'm going to pick his uh, future teammate, Maverick Vinales, because Maverick Vinales... Um, I mean, you know, he qualified, what was it, six on the grid, I think, uh, and uh, got off the line. Oh, yeah, six on the grid, and he got off the line and just went backwards. Um, didn't have any grip, couldn't fix the bike, uh, sat and complained about um, Yamaha not listening to him, no progress in the past six years, whatever. Um, same old story. And I think the contrast between Vinales and Juan Mir is really, really strong. And also, to an extent, Fabio Quartararo. Mir has that sort of stability. Uh, and as we were talking about before, he, he's aware of the wider world around him. Whereas Maverick Vinales is one of those riders who all he thinks about is racing. All he thinks about. There is only one thing he thinks about. And you sort of think that if he could let that go, if he was a little bit more of a rounded personality and person then this could be very different it could be a very very different uh, uh you know th- things to work out a lot but be- a lot better for him because it would give, just give him a little bit of mental flexibility and he doesn't that's the thing which is really lacking for him that sort of mental flexibility and this was just another case in point you know it, it never felt like it was a little bit of a long shot for vinales to uh, to, to, to still win the championship but uh, i mean i don't think anyone even thought that he would be capable of it you know after after the first day it was just uh no well all right it's not going to be maverick um and uh yeah it's not uh it's not looking good and i don't think um i don't think the monster energy yamaha uh, team is going to be a particularly uh, happy place next year Right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. Um, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Morrison. Are you looking forward to, what is it, 70 minutes of commentary for uh, FP1 of uh, <laughs> Moto2 and Moto3? I think we uh, get the, uh, we haven't drawn the short stick in that um, FP1 and FP2 for Moto2 and Moto3 is just the 55 minutes. Oh, I think it might be. Oh, easy. Yeah. Exactly. Right, you won't, you won't have to uh, resort to getting Matt to list off every single um, species of bird, um, English name and <laughs> Latin name, which he has seen throughout his lus- uh, illustrious uh, bird spotting career. 
Yes, so he'll do that anyway. Exactly. Actually, <laughs> whether it's forty minutes or fifty-five, I have a I have a confession that is one of my favourite bits uh, where uh, where we get to hear about all of the birds uh, uh, there as well. But um, that's also because I'm the most horrendous bird spotting geek as well. So, anyway, thank you very much, Mr. Morrison. I wish you good luck and um, uh, and uh, much enjoyment there in that Portimao because it's a spectacular location and the weather looks set fair and it looks like we're going to have some fun and the track is just magnificent so there's a lot to look forward to um i would also like to thank um uh, you dear listener for putting up with our nattering on for such a long time um i would particularly like to thank all of our patreon backers who uh, help cover the costs of doing this and um, who help uh, cover the cost of sending that mr morrison to all of these races um and uh, help in all sorts of way. If you want to help us, then you can go to the um, patreon.com slash podcast. If you want to learn more about us, um, uh, you can check out the uh, Twitter feed at paddockpasspod or the Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash podcast. My name has been David Emmett, and I thank you very much. Right, that's it. V good. Now I'm going to go and um, do some of that cooking. <laughs>